Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. When things go wrong in America, there's lots of blame to go around. But when the giant wheel of finger-pointing stops, the blame often lands squarely on the media. And a lot of times we deserve it. We're not asking the questions that really matter. We value style over substance. We publish stories in the form of annoying lists to try to get clicks. But this week seems to be pretty bad for our profession. As we'll hear later, we're losing one of Connecticut's sharpest news voices. More layoffs are hitting state newspapers. The media has become a punching bag in student protests from Missouri to New Haven. Then there's last night's presidential debate, where the loud complaining of candidates about previous debates, where they were asked tough and probing questions, seems to have resulted in a much more orderly exercise in which we were treated to hours of nothing more than stump speech snippets. Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable will tackle those issues, starting with the debate. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in studio, as always, is Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Back on the show with us is Jerry Brooks. He's anchor at NBC Connecticut, and he's moderated many a debate, so we want to get some of his expertise in a bit. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. And joining us for the first time in the wheelhouse, we want to welcome in Evelyn Simeon, who's associate professor of political science and faculty member at the Institute for Africana Studies at UConn. Evelyn, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you, and good morning. Well, first of all, let, let me turn to you, Colin, just to get your overview. You wrote a piece for Salon last night uh, taking a look at, at the debate. We all stayed up very, very late. Uh, Twitter was active, of course. What are your, your big themes, your big takeaways from last night's main card presidential debate? Actually, there was a paranoid part of me this morning that, think, that thought maybe the debates run so late so that commentators on the East Coast won't really have a lot of time to process them <laughs> and will be tired the next day. Uh, and won't be able to think any more clearly. Um, these Well, I mean, I, I know we're going to talk about the media later, but I think it's sort of hard not to talk about this right at the beginning. One of the things that, that did happen was that as a result of the, the feeling, anyway, by the GOP candidates that the questions from CNBC in the previous debate had been too snarky, too hard, too confrontational, too whatever, um, they arrived at some kind of unilateral, I mean, excuse me, multilateral disarmament pact with the moderators from Fox Business and the Wall Street Journal. And, and the result of that um, is, and Jerry has a lot more experience moderating debates than I do, but I was, I was reminded of the fact that a primary debate is very different from a general election debate. In a general direction, election debate, you can expect the candidates to challenge one another on almost everything, right? They have sharply etched policy differences. Here, uh, in primary debates, it tends to be more who can salute the party orthodoxy most effectively. So they're, they're less likely. I mean, if, if in fact Ben Carson begins one of his answers by saying uh, that when you raise the minimum wage, uh, unemployment invariably goes up, um, no one is going to challenge him if the moderators don't. I mean, it's most of the economic uh, evidence, the preponderance of it, suggests that that's not true. But uh, a statement like that will be allowed to hang in the, in the air unchallenged uh, if the moderators have effectively been denatured, like skunks have, who've had their scent glands pulled. They're, they're not going to be able to bring up those questions. So, I mean, to me, that's one of the stories last, uh, of last night. And then 
I guess the other is if I were a, a Clinton strategist right now, and we learned from the debate last night that Bernie Sanders has no chance whatsoever, he was never mentioned, um, that if I were a Clinton strategist right now, I'd be worried about Marco Rubio. I actually do think he is able to pull his presentation together pretty effectively and, and hit a kind of sweet spot where he's got enough of the orthodoxy to satisfy most of the right on most of the issues, but he's also able to position himself close enough to the center uh, on, on some issues. And obviously last night the child care tax credit would be numero uno, although the fact that he has a more nuanced position on, on immigration uh, probably also falls into that category. He, I thought last night, as was the case on previous debates, he seemed somewhat measured rather articulate, and kind of like he's got his stuff together. Uh, the, uh, many of the other ones seem to have these just huge defects. And by luck of the draw, really, and this is what happens when you have so many candidates on stage, uh, many people noted on Twitter that uh, Marco Rubio was able to escape the first go-around on immigration last night because mm-hmm. the questions went to other people. He didn't have to lay out his nuanced response in 90 seconds with other people yelling at him like Donald Trump. Instead, he sort of laid out on that piece of it, so he never really had to talk about it. Instead, he got a couple minutes with Steve Inskeep on, on Morning Edition this morning to actually lay things out. Yeah, I, so, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, it's difficult because, I mean, I don't really have any plan to vote for any of these people. Um and, and to me, some of them just seem so obviously flawed that, um, I mean, Trump's, Trump, although he, like, once again, the numbers were good for him last night, as he would be the first to tell you, um, this is the instant polling numbers, but he just seems like a, a loudmouth, self-congratulatory bully with, without a lot of substance in, in what he says. Ben Carson, you know, really benefited last night from the fact that Neil Cavuto, in his question, really didn't challenge Carson on what had been maybe the political story of the week, just the way in which Carson's own personal narrative doesn't hang together very well. That would involve bringing up specifics. You said this. This appears not to be true. You said that. That appears not to be true. Instead, Cavuto actually couched the question more in the in the sense of, well, I know you're kind of tired of the double standard where Barack Obama never gets asked <laughs> these kinds of questions, and you do. And so, really, it fell to Carson to be the one of the to be the only person to raise a specific thing. It was the the West Point scholarship thing. And also, am I the only person who's? I just feel like Ben Carson sounds like he's been dipping into the hospital ether supply. He has this kind of slightly slurry way of speaking, <laughs> which I, I would find disconcerting in a president with, with, with his eyes only half open. Evelyn, how about you? No, no, I agree with them wholeheartedly. The whole time, I was wondering what was going on with um, Ben Carson and his his speech uh, last night. So I think a lot of his comments are spot on, really. Um, I do think it's interesting that we have a Republican Party that, on the one hand, professes to be on the side of those working-class Americans that are living, quote-unquote, from paycheck to paycheck, but at the same time, almost uniformly oppose a raise in a minimum wage that would be, what, $15 an hour, which I think the commentator remarked amounts to 31 k and that being, quote-unquote, too high. Well, really? at, at, at one point, Donald Trump is actually talking about costs too high, wages too high. And, and, and I thought for a second, wages too high. What do we mean by wages too high? And this is actually something we've talked about on our program with, with candidates for higher office here in Connecticut in the past, is when you start to talk about you know, how much working people are supposed to make and you're a multimillionaire, it, I mean, it can't strike people in any way other, Evelyn, than Huh? Really? You're saying my wage is too high, whether it's 15 or 25 or $35 an hour? <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's preposterous for somebody like Trump 
as you said, multimillionaire, billionaire, suggesting that, what, $15 an hour is, quote-unquote, too high? Yeah. So I, I, other than that, though, I mean, what are some other takeaways? What did you see in any of the candidates last night? As Collins said, it, it seemed to be another Marco Rubio moment in which he's able to come across as a reasoned, moderate, you know, to a certain extent, within the party compared to who else is on stage. Uh, is it a Marco Rubio night? What else did you see? I, I do agree with his assessment of Marco Rubio. He was probably the most um, articulate and well-poised to answer the questions um, set before him. Um, I did walk away with him being the candidate that rests on my mind in terms of having probably the most cogent answers. Not that I agree with his positions, but by the same, same token, sort of moving away just the from the sensational attacks uh, opposite the Obama administration or Clinton or just the commentary that sort of distracts us from real issues. The comments like um, in the case for Trump, who's talking about um, the borders. And I think every show this morning was highlighting this as sort of a pivotal moment. And the first clip is, we need borders. A wall will be successful, right? And this, the comments around 5 million um, being sent back in the Supreme Court decision and it resonating with Trump as well as others and the realistic, or I should say, um, the lack of realism in his own remarks regarding sending five million or more back. That just not being feasible as a real plan. And at the end of the podium, uh, at the end of the stage, Jerry, there's John Kasich from Ohio, who when Donald Trump is saying stuff like this, he's basically got one hand in his pocket. He's kind of shaking his head the entire time. I can't believe this guy's saying this. I can't believe you're actually going to say this isn't even realistic, people. And, and Kasich, of course, was also the candidate last night who said over and over again, I'm not getting enough time. I'm not getting enough time. He's the Jim Webb of this particular debate. Um, what, what did you take away from last night, Jerry? Well, you know, Kasich is a guy who came in absolutely convinced I am not going to get cheated out of my time. I am going to stamp my feet and scream and talk over everybody, and I'm going to get my time one way or another. And it was that way. You know, clearly Carson isn't the second coming of Reagan as, as a speaker. And, you know, the, my takeaway too, Rubio, and I think maybe we're looking at it as who could possibly play in Connecticut. And I, I think out of that bunch, it would appear to be Rubio. I thought... Uh, that he was originally just kind of setting himself up for 2020 or 2024 maybe. But now in 2016, he could be emerging as the most sensible candidate for the Republican Party out of the whole bunch. you got to love Trump. I mean, he speaks in absolutes. We're going to build a wall. We're going to have a wall. It's going to keep people out. And then we're going to throw, you know, 11 million or 5 million people over that wall back into Mexico and, you know, a lot of people respond to absolutes. And I'm also looking at it from a programming standpoint. This was Fox Business News's best shot at saying, this is why you should watch us instead of CNBC. Uh, Neil Cavuto uh, and Maria Bartiromo both obviously came from CNBC a few years ago. Uh, you know, Cabuto shot at CNBC in the uh, in the <laughs> end. Uh, not that I'm defending the mothership here, but, you know, it, it could be any other channel. And I'd say, Neil, grow up. Really? I mean, they, they all look like, you know, freshly scrubbed students with apples for the teachers on, on their desks, you know, except for the Wall Street Journal guy who, 
you know, cuts a kind of rakish figure with, you know, anybody who has a British accent does. <laughs> so, the, you know, those are my takeaways. Uh, so, so, Colin, I want to get into a little bit of, uh, more about the way this, this debate was handled by the media, but let's just hear a little bit from some of what the, the candidates said, some other takeaway moments. Here, here's a really great uh, Ted Cruz moment. Um, he was uh, trying to uh, do something that other candidates from Texas have tried to do in the past, name different parts of the government that he would cut out if he became president. The IRS, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, uh, the Department of Commerce, and HUD. Okay, so Ted Cruz really, really doesn't like the Department of Commerce. We never got that fifth one, kind of his oops moment there. Any other moments like that for you, Colin? Um, I don't know whether it's exactly in that category, but uh, certainly um, at the end of a long, uh, semi-coherent, that might even be generous, Trump rant about the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, in which he sort of talked about all the advantages garnered by China under this, Rand Paul finally said, you know, to to, uh, to Gerard Baker, we should probably point out that China is not a signatory to this deal. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I mean, the candidates uh, complained with CNBC about so-called gotcha moments. I mean, they had to deliver their own gotcha moments to each other. They didn't do it all that well. I'd like to go back to something that Evelyn said, because I think it's important. Um, If I were watching this debate and I were the kind of beleaguered American that economically beleaguered American that the candidates tended to summon up from time to time, often with these rather, you know, dry anecdotes. I talked to somebody last night who didn't know how she was going to pay her bills. Well, it's like I talked to somebody last night. But um, but if I were one of those people, I'm not sure listening to the rhetoric, listening to the substance of what was put out there last night, that I would know what these people had intended to do for me, to help me. In other words, the really kind of the only thing you probably heard, setting aside uh, Marco Rubio's child tax care credit, which is one of the few examples last night of, you know what, you're having a hard time. Here's something that I'd like to do for you. I mean, which, you know, at a time like this, when in fact the jumping off place for them again and again was that Americans aren't doing well. Um, other than that, it really is just the lowering of the tax rate. Most of this is couched in, in the, the framework of the flat tax, which if you go back to Steve Forbes many election cycles ago, it seemed like an almost laughable concept. Now it's embraced as something close to orthodoxy. And clearly, I mean, one thing that you, we can debate a lot of things about the flat tax. The one thing that we can't debate is that it's, it's, it, it falls more heavily uh, the lower you are on the income scale. In other words, the way the progressive tax rate um, works is that the highest marginal rate, the most amount of money that people make is taxed at a higher rate. Uh, people who don't make very much money at all are taxed at the lowest possible rate. That seems fair. <laughs> it seems like a way of of dealing with the problems of people who do feel beleaguered, sometimes at the expense of people who are doing extremely well. So I don't know. If I were one of those beleaguered Americans waiting for this Republican Party to say something about my problems that seemed like a concrete answer, I don't think I really heard it. Well, in one of the explanations given actually by Dr. Carson last night, Evelyn, when he was explaining his, his flat taxes, essentially went like this. You know, if you make $10 billion a year, you, you give us a billion dollars. And if you make $10, you give $1. And it just sits, it kind of sits there. And it, it's, it's obvious there's not an equivalency there. If you have $10 billion, you can give up a billion. That's not the same as someone who makes $10 giving up one. Right. It has greater meaning for that person that would give up one. Um, I think um, it was a reference to tithing. They talked about it mm-hmm. with respect to church and tithing that 10 percent. And there's always a question, is that before or after taxes for those of us that actually go to church? But uh, another moment that 
kind of caught my attention, and I'm not sure if it came from Cruz or Trump or Carson, but in unison, you almost hear them uniformly agree that the Obama economy is a quote-unquote disaster. And I had to write this down. Someone actually said there was growth under Ronald Reagan. And, you know, I'm not that old, but I grew up during those Reagan years. And there was serious unemployment and there was a long term recession. And so I can't imagine or fathom in the back of my mind who on earth believes there was, quote unquote, growth under Reagan's trickle down theory. But, but I, I think one of the, the, the points is, is if you if you start to go back through real history, you will see uh, moments of growth during Republican administrations and moments of chaos and crisis during Republican administrations. You'll see moments of growth during Democratic administrations and uh, also problems during Democratic administrations as well. It's really hard to lay any one thing at the feet of just an administration because there's lots of other factors. Obviously, these candidates in a Republican debate are going to just try to lay everything at the feet of Barack Obama. But what you're saying is some of their specifics that they're trying to, to put in there don't exactly ring true. Absolutely. Um, And one reoccurring theme is that we need to repeal all the rules under Obama. I think that was said time and time again in this constant reference to Obamacare. And we have yet to really talk about the one woman, you know, Carly Fiorina, and sort of what is her take? What is her position? Um, Like many of the male candidates, there's the same voice or the same message um, of high unemployment and the economy is ter- currently a disaster and that the Republicans have an answer or some sort of fix that the Democrats don't. Mm. Uh, and quickly before our break, Jerry, you know, we we did hear a little bit from Carly Fiore and I put that in the in the billboard at the very top of the show. The one moment that really stood out for an awful lot of people is when she just sort of trounced all over uh, Rand Paul, took a couple minutes of the debate for herself. And then Donald Trump, in a only way only Donald Trump can do, kind of shouted her down, asked why she's interrupting everyone. You know, the sort of thing that just makes Donald Trump so lovable to, to women uh, voters all across America. You know, you got eight candidates up there. They're all looking to have their moment to make their mark. Eight is too many. Four, you know, you have 12. You know, you have to break it down into two debates now. I, I know some of the local debates we've done over the years, especially 2010, when everybody was running for governor on, on either side of the, the ledger. It's just difficult to juggle a debate like that. To make sure everybody gets a fair amount of time. But in this case, the moderators just kind of leaned back and said, "Okay, you know, just talk over each other. They lost control of the debate last night. Well, we're going to talk more about losing control of the debate with somebody who's hosted an awful lot of these things. Jerry Brooks, Colin McEnroe from the Colin McEnroe show is also here. Evelyn Simeon from UConn is here as well. We'll take some of your tweets and emails at where we live. I'm going to propose something when we come back. Maybe it's some sort of a playoff system. We can have play in games and then we can have a bracket of eight all the way down to. I I think I think this is the way to do it. If you have your own thoughts, 860-275-7266. This is the wheelhouse on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankoski. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable each Wednesday. Today we're joined by Evelyn Simeon, who's Associate Professor of Political Science and a faculty member at the Institute for Africana Studies at UConn. Jerry Brooks, who's an anchor at NBC Connecticut. And our own Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. What's on your show today, Colin? Well, you're going to think that we threw this show together last night. Um, 
because last night two candidates went out of their way to uh, thump philosophers. Uh, we are actually doing a show today about <laughs> philosophers and about the, specifically about the notion. Shelley Kagan was and I were on a radio show together, a podcast together recently, and he was just talking about the fact that you know every night uh, on cable news and on talk radio during the day, there are people just debating back and forth about what's right and what's wrong, and that philosophers actually have some training about this, and they're hardly ever asked. Their thoughts about this. I'd like to also point out that most philosophers do not have Twitter accounts, so maybe it's partly their fault. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about philosopher. Will we men- be mentioning philosopher kings? We will talk about philosopher. Oh, kings philosopher as well. kings. Uh, we will uh, choose a philosopher <laughs> king of the show. Ted Ted Cruz talked a lot about philosopher kings and how he did not like them uh, yesterday on the debate. As we continue our talk about the the GOP debate last night, uh, Jerry Brooks, I want to ask you a little bit about what went on with the moderators, not just last night, but in previous debates too. As Colin and I set up at the beginning, I, I think what happened with Fox Business last night was in part an outgrowth from all of the previous debates where uh, Republican candidates got together. They said they didn't like the gotcha questions that that moderators were putting forward. They didn't like the format. And to be frank, as a consumer of news, I didn't love the earlier formats either in which it seemed as though there were no discernible rules. Last night, as Colin quite rightly pointed out, there wasn't a whole lot of challenging of notions. Um, There really was just uh, snippets of some speeches. But that said, it moved along in a way in which you at least got to hear from all the candidates more or less equally as opposed to what had happened before. How did you judge, like, the show that was put out on last night and how well the moderators did? Well, it is a show now. I, you, know, you used to think of it as a, as a public service, and now it's more, to me, programming. Uh, you know, the way they're promoted, uh, CNN's countdown clock to the debates that they put up on the screen, which I just thought was insane. <laughs> But you know, and now they're heavily produced. You know, the music going in and out of the breaks and all that. The Star Spangled. I mean, oh, did we always, did we sing the 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 national anthem before uh, debates yeah, before I, a couple I, of years ago? I, you know, Keisha asked me. Keisha Grant, my co-anchor, asked me last night. She said, and she goes, "The Star Spangled Banner," and I said, "Yeah, I don't remember that at all." But you know what? They're playing to their audience. Uh, you know, at the, at the Milwaukee Theater. Uh, and they're playing to their audience on Fox Business News. And yeah, like I said earlier, it's a TV show now. And this is programming for Fox Business News featuring Neil Cavuto and Maria Bartiromo, their two big guns on FBN. And, uh, you know, again, this is why we're so much better than CNBC. And you should watch us because all of our programming is this good. Uh, look, <laughs> that's the bottom line to me these days is, is the way, you know, these are now reality programs unto themselves. My big concern when I moderate a debate is to make sure everybody does get equal time. In in that case last night, I thought they did a pretty good job of that. You know, everybody made themselves heard for better or or worse, depending on whatever the subject was, you know, with Rand Paul and John Kasich at either end just, you know, screaming, what about me? But what about me got them on the air. Uh, how about you, Evelyn? I mean, does, does the actual way in which these shows are put together now, does it keep us from really getting to anything substantive? And I suppose a follow-up to that is, did we ever get anything substantive before? I mean, political debates, and I've hosted many of them as Jerry ha- has and Colin has as well, really are just for show. They're, they're a public service to a certain point. But, I mean, are we, should we be expecting anything more than, I suppose, what we're getting? I mean, that's a really good question. The word that pops into my head is infotainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it is. There was a moment there when I turned on the channel and I saw them singing the national anthem. I thought, this is sort of like a red carpet moment. There's like countdown to the Oscars, but it's like <laughs> countdown to the debates. And our stars in the lineup, 
you know, sort of roll call of Trump, you know, um, Cruz, Fiorina at all. But I actually watched the debate that occurred earlier around seven o'clock. Mm-hmm, and I'd mm-hmm. actually characterized that one as sort of like a dogfight. Yeah, I felt um, especially with Bobby Jindal. And coincidentally, I'm from the state of Louisiana. And so that is quite humorous uh, for me to actually watch his performance <laughs> and to listen to some of the substantive content coming from his lips, talking about the economy and thinking to myself how poorly he has mismanaged the economy in my home state. But for him to get up there and and sort of preach um, to the extent that he blames the current administration for the economy that we currently have. Um, So actually, I think the earlier debate might have been far more entertaining um, insofar as that perspective goes. Um, and they were, to some extent, off topic. If the focus was supposed to be squarely on the economy, um, there was this one remark, and this is probably because I'm a college professor, right, where they say someone uh, among them, I can't remember if it was Jindal or Christie, said higher education does not teach 21st century skills and sort of taken aback by that remark. And also, again, off topic, um, focusing not on the economy, but also law enforcement. So it's interesting how the earlier debate sort of moved away from a sharp focus on the economy, which made it a bit more interesting from my perspective. It it was interesting, and I think, honestly, Colin, we probably learned a little bit more about those four candidates because they each had a little bit more time to talk. They went after each other in a way that we've become accustomed to. Uh, poor Rick Santorum, not being a governor uh, who could throw punches at, at the other governors, kind of had his own thing happening at the end of the stage. What did you take from the earlier debate? Well, that, you know, really everybody who advocates smaller class size is correct. You know, that you get extra help when they're smaller <laughs> class size. Um, it, it is sort of odd the way there has this caste system has now evolved where you have sort of, you know, the, the privileged eight and then the not so lucky four. And then there's, you know, Pataki and Lindsey Graham who are just you know, sitting in cheesy bars somewhere. We're watching the whole that thing went happen. For the there. moderators too, you know, you have the B team moderating, you know, the B debate, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to play my way onto the A team. You know, I, Rick Santorum, <laughs> I kind of like remember me, really. I, I, I was, and and then there's Chris Christie who who projects, I don't belong here. I belong with the big boys and girls. You, well, know, you, I, I, you know that all of them are thinking that, right? All four of them are thinking, I don't belong with these three idiots. <laughs> uh, I belong. I, I just like to go back to. I, I, I do think. There's a fundamental failure when things are said that are either not true or not responsive to questions, and moderators don't do anything about it. Um, and we've we've had that reaction in the past in presidential debates and in primary debates. Um, last night, I thought maybe the most egregious moment, uh, one of the few questions that did contain a little bit of challenging content went to Carly Fiorina. I believe it was uh, Mr. Baker uh, laying out this whole idea that – no, it might have been Bartiromo Romo, actually uh, – laying out this whole idea that if you look at previous presidential administrations, you can make a pretty strong numerical case that the two most recent Democratic administrations have created a lot more jobs than the Bush administration sandwiched in between them has. Uh, And and numbers were thrown down on the table. And then the questioner said, so how do you make the case for turning job creation back over to Republicans who at least numerically haven't done as well? And her question, her answer was lengthy, but utterly unresponsive. It is though she had not heard the question that was asked. Uh, I mean, the reality was she didn't really have any prepared answer for it. And, and I do think at that point the moderator does have to say, that's not what I asked really? you. 
you have to answer it. And and I think there last night, I mean, I think in some ways the moderators tended to hide the the weaknesses of the Republicans, which doesn't even do them any favors. You know, they need to be able to uh, come up with answers to questions. And I think in particular, a particular weakness is, I mean, one moderator did bring up the fact that we are having an energy boom right now, uh, but not very forcefully. Now, with the the energy boom, it, it really is happening for better, and there are good things about that and bad things about it. But it really meant that much of the Republican rhetoric last night that Evelyn cited about rolling back all Obama regulations on everything is a solution in search of a problem, right? We don't have we don't have regulations right now that are stifling the growth of the energy sector. Quite the opposite. The energy sector is growing by leaps and bounds. To, 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 to the point where Donald Trump essentially says, ah, John Kasich, you know, you've got fracking in Ohio. I mean, you think you're doing a good job, but look at all. And essentially, uh, to a certain extent, he's right. I mean, Ohio has boomed because of a lack of regulation around a very controversial drilling that has put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets. Right. And then, I mean, finally, and I'll stop ranting about this, but I mean, obviously, there are debates that meaningful debates that are going on and that can go on about Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank, obviously, the legislation that was passed in reaction to the banking crisis of 2007 to 2010. Um, there are people like Elizabeth Warren who say the biggest problem with Dodd-Frank right now is that it was never strong enough to begin with in terms of the regulations it visits upon uh, big players in the financial sector. And it also has, it has been progressively defanged by rollbacks since then. OK, so there's that argument. And then there's the rather bizarre argument that you heard last night, was that which was that Dodd-Frank was bad in and of itself because it regulated these institutions. That these institutions, which almost everybody last night seemed to agree, had gotten out of control, uh, ha- had dysfunctioned in ways that were almost irreparably damaging to the American people and to the American economy, um, it suffered greatly by having been regulated. <laughs> <laughs> that the, the biggest problem was that's why that they they gotten out of control that they were regulated too much. It just one thing doesn't seem to follow the other. I mean, you listen to Carson begin his answer, and it seemed as though his answer had inevitably to lead for to an argument for greater regulation and oversight of financial institutions, and it just didn't. And and once again, you kind of wish a moderator had had the backbone to say, all of you are essentially arguing <laughs> that the problem. Big Wall Street banks is that they're regulated too much. It just seems to fly in the face of evidence. Uh, we got an email from Paul. After every debate, reporters and pundits analyze every tidbit of everyone's statement. So why do we need moderators to be confrontational during a debate? Yes, they should ask tough, relevant questions, but can't they let the candidates' answers hang in the ether until the after shows and blogosphere get a hold of them? At least the debate itself would keep moving and it would limit any moderator grandstanding. Jerry? You know, uh, it, it, again, it, it goes back to me to the TV show. The, the, the moderators are also performers. They need to perform for their bosses. Uh, and that's, you know, that I'm sure Roger Ailes gave the three of them their marching orders last night. Here's what CNBC got panned for. Here's what you're not going to do. Here's what you are going to do. Neil, I want to see you smile. You don't smile enough. Neil smiled a lot last night. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen Neil Cavuto smile that much. I, I, I want to play one last piece of tape, and this is from the, the uh, under-ticket debate, we'll call it, the Bobby Jindal uh, debate, in which he's, uh, he's being asked a question here that he sort of rejects the notion of. Let's listen to it a little bit. To do the things you're talking about, that you're all talking about, getting things done in Washington, you have to work with the other side. So a question. Who in Congress do you most admire on the Democratic side? I need one name from each of you. And let's start with Governor Jindal. 
Look, we can waste our time, and I think this is why people are so frustrated with the last debate, with these kinds of silly questions. We've only got a certain amount of time to talk about the economy. Let me use my time to say that I want to fire everybody in D.C. in both parties. I think they all, we need term limits, get rid of them all, and make them live under the same rules they pass for the rest of us. Okay, so that's Bobby Jindal in the Undertaker debate, which, Evelyn, as you said, both you and I watched, and I thought was a little bit more entertaining. But but here's here's a question that, you know— it's easy for Republican candidates to reject that and to get an applause line because the the media elites are always going to ask questions like that that they can then say are silly and, the, and they'll get applause. I, honestly, I don't think that that's a silly question at all. And I think that it actually speaks a little bit to the notion of, of how someone might reasonably approach people who aren't exactly the same as them. I mean, one of the things about being a president and that I think Democrats and Republicans uh, during this campaign should be asked is that you are going to have to work with other people. You're not going to throw everyone out. You're not going to write all the rules yourself. You're going to work with the Congress. You're going to work with governors around the, the country who may be in different parties than you. I don't know that I think that's a silly question at all. And just his, his and everyone else's evasion of that just leads me to think, well, what could we possibly ask? There are two questions that got evaded. That's one. And obviously he's ducking, he's diving, he's he's playing a little dodgeball there. But I do recall one response that got some attention this morning on the news. It was someone's response was Democrats fight hard. And so it was sort of a more general, broader answer to the question without naming a specific Democrat on Capitol Hill, but saying the Democrats fight hard. And on that basis, they could um, respect them as a party. But there was another question, if I might just um, swerve, sure. um, take a take another, bring up another issue. I think a legitimate question that got asked was um, with regard to experience. Each candidate, and this was the second debate involving um, Carson, Trump, Fiorita, et al., and it had to do with Hillary Clinton having more um, experience in government than any one of the candidates on stage last night. And there was a way in which the response from the candidates, and I think it was um, Mark Rubio, um, Rubio, that responded with sort of like a chuckle, a laugh, and there was also like a boo in the audience. And while it's actually a legitimate question, it's one that is not was was not taken seriously, especially with regard to the business sector. You know, you've got three candidates there um, representing, at least three that come to mind, that are representing business owners, you know, the multimillionaires, or whether it be um, Trump with his real estate ventures or Fiorina with her prior um, experience with Hewitt-Packard. You're talking about a legitimate question for those that do not come with governmental experience, and yet it the response it solicits is sort of a, a chuckle, a laugh, and a boo. Not to be taken seriously, but it's really a legitimate question for any one of them on stage. And that was one, as you mentioned earlier, Colin, it was one of a couple questions that were formulated in such a way that it seemed as though the moderators were taking seriously what they were trying to do and trying to get an honest, interesting response out of people who probably weren't going to give them honest, interesting responses. Although I wouldn't really put the Hillary Clinton question in that category. In fact, you're just teeing something up when you ask. That's that's all they've been talking about in their spare time is how much better they are than Hillary Clinton. So asking them a question like that, even though it was framed in that notion. I mean, Kasich had, uh, Kasich had rejected the idea. He said that we can't have on-the-job training anymore of presidents. Well, the person who needs the least on-the-job training is Hillary Clinton. But, but still, even though it was framed a little bit 
confrontationally. That's a question that they relished being asked. Let me just quickly go, go back to the other thing. So I think this is this might be the only legitimate aperture I have from all of last night is, you know, that whole notion of collegiality that you cited, the, the, the piece of tape that you played. One of the things that I was thinking a lot about last night, and, and Evelyn has harked back to the Reagan years, I was thinking about them as well, because so many of these candidates do have radical tax cut proposals, and um, as did Reagan. Um, and one of the problems, obviously, if you cut taxes, if you go to a flat tax or some tax that significantly deprives the government of revenue, you have to cut expenditures in very significant ways. And David Stockman, when he was Reagan's budget director, uh, famously discovered that the Republicans weren't re really willing to do that other thing, that whether it was military spending, which Reagan was very fond of, or um, very tight reform of the Social Security uh, benefit structure, which Stockman wanted to do, the Republicans in Congress just wouldn't do it. When it really came down to it, they didn't have the guts to do that, to cut expenditures that are popular with their constituencies. And Stockman famously said, I guess there are no real conservatives in Congress. Um, I think that there's a difference now. Uh, I mean, the Tea Party faction in Congress, all you have to do is see the pained, permanently pained look on John Boehner's face. They will cut anything. They will do anything. <laughs> they are prepared to answer a bell like that in a very radicalized way. And that might be the biggest difference between then and now, that if you, if you as a presidential candidate propose radical spending cuts that will be felt as true pain by the American public, you're going to have a substantial group of people, at least in the House, who are willing to go, go the distance with you on that. Did you have a last thought, Jerry? Well, yeah, my last thought was, and that's harking back to the Hillary Clinton issue, is how much is a moderator going to let a candidate commandeer the airwaves? Because, you know, once when the candidate doesn't want to answer a question, he or she will just you know, go to their canned spiel, make the point they want to make, say the sound bite that they want to say, and, you know, the moderator know, okay, he's commandeered the airwaves, she's commandeered the airwaves. How, how much, how far are you going to let them go? Are you going to be Terry Collins? Are you going to let them go out and throw that one last pitch? <laughs> you know, and, and that's what a moderator <laughs> has to decide. And, you know, in, in a lot of cases last night, they let them throw that one extra pitch. Uh, we're talking with Jerry Brooks, an anchor at NBC Connecticut, Evelyn Simeon, uh, who's from the University of Connecticut, Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR in the Wheelhouse. When we come back, we'll turn away from presidential politics to what's been happening on college campuses from Missouri to New Haven. Uh, an awful lot of questions about free speech and what exactly that means, including how students and protesters deal with the press. That's up next in the Wheelhouse, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk to former Boston Globe columnist Eileen McNamara about Spotlight, the new film chronicling the Globe's coverage of sexual abuse in the Boston Archdiocese. We'll also find out how the Catholic clergy scandal has been and continues to be covered in other cities, including here in Hartford and Bridgeport. Hope you can join us tomorrow. Today, it's the Wheelhouse of Weekly News Roundtable. Colin McEnroe, Jerry Brooks from NBC Connecticut, Evelyn Simeon from UConn are all here. We've been talking about politics and the presidential debate last night. Uh, protests in Missouri regarding racial problems on campus have been at least momentarily overshadowed by a First Amendment debate due in part uh, to this video showing a photographer attempting to photograph protests on campus where he met resistance. So the First Amendment protects your right to be here and mine. Okay, we protect you protect our there's not a law around that. Forget a law. How about humanity? Okay, so there's been an apology from the professor who is at the center of that, but it has stirred up things. And Evelyn Simeon, I guess the first question is, 
now that the conversation in Missouri, and, and we'll get to some of the same things that happened in the New Haven protest around, around Yale, it's all seem, seemingly focused on whether or not the press has access to cover these things. Is it taking away from the core message of what's happening on the University of Missouri campus and also at Yale? I mean, this debate um, is an important one, and it's one that certainly should be covered by the press. Um, I do think it is one way of sort of losing focus on the main issue, and those are the very events that led to the um, protest on these respective campuses. And that's where, actually, I think the focus needs to lie, and squarely so. And also the response that it solicits on the part of the university and its administrative staff. Being on a college campus right now, I mean, are are you hearing some of the same conversations uh, on UConn's campus that are being had a little bit more loudly in the streets in Columbia, Missouri, and in New Haven right now? Uh, This has been an ongoing conversation um, prior to both of these respective events. There have been similar instances to take place on the University of Connecticut's campus that has drawn similar media attention. Um, matter of fact, within the last year. And so I think in the same way, there have been similar on-campus demonstrations that have also caught the attention of the Hartford Current as well as the local news stations. So it's not isolated and it's not specific to Mizzou or Yale, but it's uh, epidemic, I would say, that is occurring across the country at several colleges and universities. So uh, last night on NPR's All Things Considered, you may have heard reporter Bram Sable-Smith discuss the protest. Now, he's from KBIA. It's an NPR member station that's licensed to the university, and he was there to cover the protest. Let's listen to what he had to say on ATC last night. I'm confused about why these students don't want this story covered, and race seems to be a part of that. When asked about the rationale for the media policy, Demonstrators repeatedly told me, no comment. Later, I noticed a tweet which read, white media loves to make things about them. It's disgusting. I understand the sentiment. After all, here I am writing this story. But I don't really know what to make of the whole day. I do think it sure would be helpful to have a deeper conversation. I I will say, Colin, I thought it was a a thoughtful piece, and he laid out very, very clearly, you know, I'm a white reporter on the campus trying to tell a story, and there are people of various races and backgrounds having very different experiences of exactly what's happening in front of them. I guess I'm wondering how all of this strikes you, the the protests that I know you talked about earlier this week in your show, and some of the backlash against the media around them. I think this is a little bit of a detour, this whole conversation. Uh, and I don't, e- I don't really understand the sentiments. I'm as baffled as that reporter was. I mean, ordinarily, when you protest, part of the idea is the whole world is watching. Uh, you want the whole world to be watching. So the idea that you don't want the whole world to be watching is a little bit hard for me to, to fathom. And certainly the moment when the University of Missouri journalist and professor said, I need some muscle over here to get the photographers out. I mean, uh, I just it's, I felt like we'd entered cloud cuckoo land at that point. Uh, I I think to me, as these are really, really complicated, nuanced, subtle situations. They're not identical, uh, Missouri and Yale. They have some similarities, but they're far from identical. I would say in the case of Missouri, I, I, the more that I read, the more I feel as though the students there have built um, a pretty large, nuanced historical case, uh, in some cases dating all the way back to 1950 when the first African-American students were admitted, for the fact that there are problems there on campus and, and that they don't feel as though they receive equal treatment and that their issues are not responded to with alacrity or with seriousness. Um, I, I think they've made a pretty good case that Tim Wolf was 
as is often the case with somebody who's brought in with primarily executive business experience as opposed to academic on-campus experience, wasn't a good, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't even know what the, how you describe it right now, but college presidents need to be able to get down at the level of their students and talk to them. I don't think he was very good at that. At Yale, I feel as though, Yale's actually done a pretty good job of handling all this. I feel as though the students have not made a comparably strong case for the problems that they have. You have um, a, a, the case of an African-American woman being turned away from a primarily white party, I guess, at SAE. Uh, fraternities already had problems with the administration. Lots of problems. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, for that to happen once is too much, but doesn't really feel like it's a campus upheaval kind of thing. The Halloween costumes thing strikes me as essentially kind of minimal. And, and I think the university's done a pretty good job. You know, you've seen Jonathan Holloway, the dean, talking to often very angry uh, and exercised students. Then you've seen Nicholas Christakis, who's the master of Silliman, doing the same thing uh, and able to keep a pretty measured tone while people are kind of screaming at him. And then Peter Solovey, the um, president of Yale, and Jonathan Holloway, the dean, put out a statement yesterday that I thought was pretty good. It said, look, we understand. You've got some worries. You've got some concerns. You've got some ways in which you think we can do better. But you also have to understand that this campus is a place where everybody is going to get a chance to talk. And you're going to hear things that you don't like sometimes. And, and, and that's part of the academic back and forth. Uh, that, that's part of the academic freedom. That's why we're here. We're not here just to repeat pablum. Uh, that, I mean, they didn't use that word. But, and, and, but I think that's really important. And I connect some of this to a wave of protests on college campuses about a year ago where college campuses were turning away uh, graduation speakers that they didn't like, uh, including the former president of the World Bank and Condoleezza Rice. You know, I mean, I, I think that's a mistake, you know, trying to purify your campus so that you never hear anything that you don't want to hear. Uh, Evelyn, do you have a quick thought on this? I mean, there's I have a few thoughts. I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to say any college president handles these situations well. I mean, there's PR behind this. There's a real um, bottom line with regard to alumni and donors and reputations that are at stake. And so there's been a verbal response. And yes, there's been a meeting. So there's been public acknowledgement. But will there be concrete, responsive action? Will there be funds put into the hiring of more faculty of color? Where th- will there be programs, events, diversity training? I think one of the demands from the students includes not just hiring more faculty of color, but also requiring diversity training. It's something that's required of our faculty and staff, but not of our students. And of course, yeah, there'll probably be some pushback on that. And while I hear you with regard to, there's lots of things we will hear on a college campus that aren't friendly and welcoming. But there are certain groups that are disproportionately hearing those messages, you know, on a routine basis, particularly the N-word in the case of Mizzou in particular. And so it really runs a continuum. While the two cases, Yale and Mizzou, are not identical, they are rather similar. Hmm. I, we're going to have to leave that conversation there, and I think it's probably good to have more conversation about that on, on a future program here on Where We Live. I just want to leave a moment for something, Colin, that we wanted to say. I mentioned at the top of the program, it's been a little bit of a tough week for Connecticut's uh, media, including the newspaper industry. Dozens of digital first media employees were laid off, including some of the New Haven Register and the Touring Register Citizen. And we also uh, find out that some of the Hartford current buyouts are now coming home to roost, including a, a really good friend of ours. Yeah, Tom Condon, who's appeared on the Wheelhouse in the past, uh, is a guy who has 
was that I think a 47-year career at the Hartford Current. I mean, try to wrap your mind around even that idea, uh, during which time he started out, well, one of his early uh, functions is one of the toughest investigative reporters the Current's ever had. He transitioned from there to a columnist who has, I think, written very effectively and eloquently about transportation and land use planning. Those are sometimes pretty much the same thing. Uh, In between that, he had a different kind of column. Always, Tom has been fair. Uh, He's placed uh, justice and fairness ahead of his own ego every single time. Uh, And he's somebody I, I don't I have a hard time imagining a journalism world in Connecticut without Tom Condon. I mean, I just I've never known that, so I don't know what it's like. But it doesn't please me to think about it. And and, and now as he does writing, or as he has been doing writing for the Hartford Current's editorial board, we we will often open up the newspaper and say, "Aha, that, that's one that Tom wrote." Right. You can tell, <laughs> I, I, Jerry. Just a, a last thought from you. About forty-five seconds left. As you see some of these jobs go away at the newspapers, uh, obviously in other parts of the media, you've been part of this media landscape for a very long time. How, how does all this strike you? Well, forever in a day, right? and TV sucks off the newspapers first thing in the morning. You know, I, I could read The Current and go, oh, we'll do this story, we'll do this story, we'll, the, we'll do this story, whether I was at Channel 3 or now at NBC Connecticut. But what we are doing and what any responsible TV station to survive has to do is start creating more of its own original content. And, you know, you, we heard the little ad for the troubleshooters unit, but in that case, that's what we're doing. We have to come up with our own content uh, we can't always look to the newspapers now for a, oh, this looks, this looks interesting. Let's turn it into a TV story. You know, and, and I'm sure Dave Owens of The Current is jumping up and down going, yeah, that's right. And it's, it is right. So, you know, that's where radio and TV has to go in the future. And by the way, the one thing you didn't say about Tom Condon, he's a great guy, too. He is a great guy. He, he's just a really great guy. And uh, happy trails, Tom. We cannot wait to have you back on the program here to talk more about transportation and land use on where we live. Jerry Brooks from NBC Connecticut. Thanks so much, Jerry. Thanks, thanks to Evelyn Simeon from the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for coming in. And thanks to Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Continue this conversation online. It's wnpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for joining us. 